is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, if you were listening to this podcast on time, then tomorrow is a very, very momentous day for you. So this podcast is being released on March 28th, 2018, and March 29th, Thursday, March 29th, is opening day of the 2018 Major League Baseball season, okay? Guys, I can't even begin to describe to you how much I love this time of year. It's literally my favorite time of year. There's a lot of opening days where I usually, I'll I'll take the day off or at least make sure I get to watch a lot of games. This year, actually, the games are starting quite a bit earlier because with the new uh, owner's agreement, they're allowing a few more off days. But baseball to me is, it's my favorite sport. I mean, I love uh, mixed martial arts. I, I love watching the UFC. I love watching my my Thunder uh, play in the NBA. I like watching college football. I'm not a huge fan of the NFL. Um, and you know, I just I've got a burgeoning interest in jujitsu. And every one of those sports appeals to me in a different way. But baseball is kind of central to my life. That is my preference because I played baseball my entire life. I have an extreme interest in the game, uh, and I've always been interested in what's gone on on the major league level. So uh, if you don't know me, um, and I haven't really talked about it on the podcast. I I don't think I'm a huge Cardinals fan. I became a Cardinals fan in 1997, actually. So that was the year that Mark McGuire was traded to the St. Louis Cardinals from the Oakland Athletics. On all my baseball teams growing up as a kid, my nickname was Little Mac, right? So, because uh, his name was Big Mac, that was his nickname. And so uh, he was a redheaded guy that hit a lot of home runs. I was a redheaded little kid that hit some home runs from time to time. So that was my nickname. Uh, my dad bought me a St. Louis Cardinals like New Era hat, like the official 5950 New Era road hat. And that was like it. From that day forward, I was a Cardinals fan. And for anyone who thinks like it's a bandwagon thing, 1997, the Cardinals were like hot garbage, okay? They finished like fifth in the division out of six teams. That was when there were six teams in the National League Central. So uh, it was the year after that that he hit, did the whole home run race with... Uh, originally Ken Griffey Jr. and then eventually with Sammy Sosa and since has become like a huge liar, cheater, thief, all those kinds of things. So he's kind of dead to me. But anyway, I'm still a St. Louis Cardinals fan, big, big fan, still follow that team till today. So, uh, Around this point right here, if you haven't turned off the podcast already, I know there's people that are already like, ah, baseball. You're just not into baseball. And I get it. There's, you know, uh, popularity for the game in some pockets of society is going down. Like, I understand it. It's not a game that's for everybody. It doesn't have a time limit. Again, like it's on innings. It's not on time. So it's kind of an indefinitive time when it's actually going to end. But I'm just going to guarantee you something right now. If you've stuck in this far, if you've gone in, you know, three minutes or so into this podcast with me, this podcast should be interesting to you regardless of your fandom or I guess non-fandom with the game of baseball. Okay. Cause I want to talk about baseball and I want to talk about how it's directly a reflection of life in a lot of ways. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to do that in three ways. I'm going to talk about this as America's pastime. That's the first part. The second part is going to be the life lessons that I've learned from the game of baseball. And the third part is we're going to talk about baseball and resilience. So the first part, let's go ahead and get into America's pastime. Okay. Everyone's heard that in reference to the game of baseball, specifically looking at major league baseball, but really baseball helped America in a lot of different ways. Okay. And so I'm going to describe three ways that baseball helped America. And I I think it's a lot of these things that you probably already know. Some things you're not going to know, but when I think about baseball, I think about it in terms of our country and in these three ways. So the first way is that it helped America grow. 
So um, the turn of the century, so that, that would be the turn from the 19th century to the 20th century. That is when the popularity of baseball skyrocketed. Okay. And uh, there was a commentator at the time named Jacques Barzun, and he made this quote, and it's a great quote. It's whoever wants to know the heart and mind of America had better learn baseball. He wrote that in his book of essays in 1954 called God's Country and Mine. Um, and it was around this time that baseball became America's pastime, which kind of begs the question, how did baseball become America's pastime? And really, it became the national pastime during a period of really extreme nationalism in the United States. And and a lot of people call this the progressive era. So uh, the progressive era was kind of a time in the United States where there was a kind of widespread political reform that would kind of be the definitive uh, nature of that era. And that was from like the 1890s through like the 1920s. So not exactly into the roaring 20s, but just kind of into the early 1920s. And this era was defined by, you know, being against the government, being against, uh, you know, government corruption specifically, but also looked at reforming problems in the the United States caused by immigration and industrialization, urbanization, a lot of other different things. And Major League Baseball um, began professionally, really, you know, Major League Baseball cites 1869 is kind of the first year that baseball was established. And that was because of the establishment of the very first professional Major League team. And that was the Cincinnati Red Stockings, which eventually eventually became the Cincinnati Reds, obviously. And so... um, the thing was, is around the same time that there was kind of a coming of age movement with a lot of Americans, that was when baseball became incredibly, incredibly popular. And so if, if you've ever heard the statement or the phrase America's pastime, um, that is really where it came from. It's from that era. Because that was the main form of entertainment during that time, you know, when there was that huge surge, when there was a whole bunch of teams added, and that's what a lot of people did for fun. And so this was, you know, pre-radio and pre-television and pre-night games and all those different things, but it became America's favorite pastime, okay? So the second thing that um, baseball helped America with is baseball helped America fight. So you've heard a lot about these different things. But I like talking about how a lot of major leaguers have served in war, okay? And specifically during the first two world wars, okay? So I just want to run down a list uh, of some of the guys that were at the time incredibly famous players. I mean, you're going to recognize some of these names and some that you might not actually recognize, but these were incredibly, incredibly big time players that uh, the only way of thinking about it right now is it would be like, since that was the most popular sport at the time, it would be like if... uh, Gosh, if LeBron James or Steph Curry or Russell Westbrook or, you know, Peyton Manning when he was playing or, you know, Brett Favre or, you know, one of those really, really popular players, it would be like one of those guys taking a two to four year break from their career in order to go serve the country overseas as a member of the military. Like that's just to kind of put it into perspective. So just to run down the list a little bit, uh, first is Bob Feller. I love the story of Bob Feller because he enlisted in the U.S. Navy one day after Pearl Harbor. One day. And then he spent four years of service. Bob Feller is seen as one of the the better guys of his era in Major League Baseball, but he took four years out of the prime of his physical life to go and serve in the military. Now we have Yogi Berra, obviously the Hall of Fame catcher for the New York Yankees. He was a gunner's mate on board a a landing ship that landed on D-Day. So uh, this is a guy who I think he won 10 world championships with the New York Yankees. And everyone's heard about the the yogiisms, uh, those types of things. And so just an incredible guy and an incredible baseball player, but also served our country. Then we got Ted Williams, probably the best 
hitter of all time, certainly uh, the best left-handed hitter of all time. He was a naval fighter pilot, and he did a whole bunch of missions during World War II, and later he became a Marine Corps instructor, and so he spent a, a huge chunk of his prime years fighting in the war. We have Joe DiMaggio, who uh, enlisted in the United States Air Force as a staff sergeant. Is what That's how he retired, was as a staff sergeant, but he... The, the kind of the interesting thing about Joe DiMaggio is there was still quite a lot of Italian pride at this time, even for Italian immigrants. And this was a war where we were fighting the Italians. So the fact that Joe DiMaggio hopped on board this war was pretty fantastic and incredible. Uh, Warren Spahn, who was probably the best hitting pitcher of all time. Uh, he fought in the Battle of the Bulge, uh, you know, with the United States Army. So that's pretty incredible. And then Ty Cobb, he actually, um, he's one of the better players ever, even though he played kind of during the dead ball era. He served in a, kind of the modern day special forces equivalent in the U.S. Army. And he did that during World War One. And so, uh, again, uh, you, the game of baseball has allowed at different points um for its biggest stars to go and fight elsewhere. And just think of the names I mentioned earlier. Just think of the the top sports figures you can think of right now and whatever you feel like is the most popular sport in America. And imagine that person taking three to four years off during their physical prime. So think the ages of like 27 to 32. That's normally when you have your, you hit your peak physical athletic prime. And just imagine those guys going over and, you know, fighting in Iraq or Afghanistan or maybe, you know, North Korea or Russia or China or wherever you want to end up thinking we're going to fight someday, whatever place you think we're going to do that. It's a pretty incredible thing. So again, uh, the game of baseball helped America grow. Secondly, it helped America fight, but also it helped America heal. And and this is one that I, I just really like talking about uh, because I was in 10th grade when September 11th terrorist attacks happened. And that's when uh, 2,977 innocent people were murdered by Islamic fundamentalist terrorists. And so we obviously know a lot about what happened during that. So I'm not going to sit here and extol you on all the different things that happened uh, during that period of our history. But baseball had a huge impact in helping the United States heal, okay? Because that happened in September. Obviously, if you know anything about baseball, you know that the season runs through October. October is normally when the playoffs and the World Series begin. And that that is just an incredible time for baseball. September is because you got a lot of pennant races going on, or or these are races to get into the postseason and try to get to the pennant rather. And so um, when 9-11 happened, you know, just like with all of us, the, the entire country went to a pause and really all sports went on a pause, right? And so the game of baseball was able to really help people start to really think about what had happened and try to put it into an appropriate category, but also to help us move on. So one of the first times we saw that is the first game back um, in Major League Baseball was the St. Louis Cardinals versus the Milwaukee Brewers. And this was on the 17th of September of 2001. And so this was in St. Louis and the Hall of Fame announcer, Jack Buck, actually came down from the booth and he was on the field and he addressed the crowd. Um, He gave a speech and a poem. And at the time, um, in some people, didn't know this. He was battling lung cancer um, and Parkinson's disease. He was not really in good shape, but he knew he had to address the crowd at this momentous occasion and ended up becoming a really, really amazing thing that he did. So um, many people questioned whether baseball coming back, you know, just about a week after the attacks, they questioned if that, if that was too soon. That was kind of the narrative going into this first game is like, you know, is it too soon? Are, Are we really rushing this? Should, should the nation heal more? And so before he he got into much of his speech, Jack Buck said this quote, I don't know about you, but for me, the question has already been answered. Should we be here? Yes. 
And he was so emphatic with that. And I just remember the emotion of that because I was a kid at the time. And I remember watching that. I was like, man, yeah, you know, we should be here. We should be doing that. But then Jack Buck, he wrote a poem that he he read to the crowd that day. And it was just so it was so apt for the situation. So I'm going to go ahead and read that to you. It's a very short poem. So uh, indulge me as I read that for you here. So this was Jack Buck's poem that he read on the 17th of September, 2001. Since this nation was founded under God more than 200 years ago, We've been the bastion of freedom, the light which keeps the free world aglow. We do not covet the possessions of others. We are blessed with the bounty we share. We have rushed to help other nations anything, anytime, anywhere. War is just not our nature. We won't start, but we will end the fight. If we are involved, we shall be resolved to protect what we know is right. We've been challenged by a cowardly foe who strikes and then hides from our view. With one voice, We say there's no choice today, and there's only one thing to do. Everyone is saying the same thing, and praying that we end these senseless moments we are living. As our fathers did before, we shall win this unwanted war, as our children will enjoy the future we'll be giving. And that was just an incredible moment. There was a a 21-gun salute after that. There was a a bunch of firefighters and first responders and, and police officers that were on the field. Just an incredible, incredible moment. And then also, uh, just a little while after that, so uh, September 21st of 2001, um, this was the first game back in New York City after 9-11 because, of course, there were a ton of security concerns about having any type of large crowd gathering in New York City in the immediate aftermath of September 11th. And so 10 days after that was the first game, and this was the Braves versus the Mets, okay? And um, the Mets were in the playoff hunt, so the Braves were incredibly good in 2001. They they had, a I think, a five, five-and-a-half game lead whenever this game had happened. Um, and the game went fairly predictably. It was a low-scoring game, good pitchers matchup, but the New York Mets were down two to one in the bottom of the eighth inning. And Mike Piazza, who was one of, if not their best player at the time, he comes up to the plate um, and he was going up against Steve Carsey, who was a very good pitcher at the time. And there was one runner on and Mike Piazza ends up hitting an incredibly dramatic two run home run that uh, gave the Mets the lead, the lead which they held and ended up winning the game three to two. Um, But you know, that's just any game, right? You know, how many games have been, have ended three to two in the month of September between two teams going for the playoffs? There's probably been dozens, if not hundreds of games just like that. But the emotion in the stadium, I mean, in the show notes, I have a YouTube video where you can actually watch the faces of some of these people. Cause there's a, there's a ton of first responders in the crowd. There's families there of, uh, deceased firemen and police officers and people that were in the towers or, or on the planes. And so it was such a cathartic moment for a lot of these people. Um, And so that was one time where, you know, a lot of these people could compartmentalize their lives at least for a few hours, right? Um, And, you know, if the Atlanta Braves had won that game that night, it it wasn't as if that was going to be some colossal disappointment. Again, you know, baseball, there's 162 regular season games. I mean, you're certainly not going to win them all. But it was just so appropriate that uh, it went down in the way that it did. Um, And then the last moment that kind of has showed how uh, America has helped, uh, baseball has helped America heal is literally one of my favorite moments in history. And I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that. I literally mean this. And that was George W. Bush, the president at the time. It was him throwing out the first pitch 
um, during Game 3 of the World Series. So this was on the 30th of September. Um, and this was um, a World Series that was played between the Arizona, Arizona Diamondbacks and the New York Yankees. So pretty incredible that the New York Yankees made the World Series in a year where there was a tremendous terrorist attack. So a lot of the country that would normally just look at them as the evil empire and move on with their day was actually, you know, actively rooting for the New York Yankees. But uh, the president, uh, who, if you didn't know, uh, if he hadn't be, you know, if he hadn't gotten beaten out by uh, Bob, you know, Bud Selig as the the commissioner of baseball, he, he very well may have been the commissioner of baseball and not the president of our country. Just a huge baseball fan, had been part of the um, ownership team for the Texas Rangers, just a, a tremendous uh, student of the game and a tremendous fan. George W. Bush wanted to throw out the first pitch at a World Series game after this terrorist attack. Now, um, the Arizona Diamondbacks had home court or home court, home field advantage during this time. Um, and so they got to play games one and two, and then if necessary, games six and seven in Arizona at their stadium. Okay. Um, so he wanted to throw that pitch out there, but it just didn't make sense to him to throw the first pitch out in Arizona. Now, if he did it in Arizona, it obviously would have been much safer, uh, you know, as far as we know, but he was very, very adamant about throwing that first pitch out during game three, the first game in Yankee stadium of the world series. Okay. And so, um, there's also in the show notes, there's a video here. That's kind of like a little mini documentary about that pitch because George Bush was, he was so nervous going into this pitch, right? And again, it's just a pitch. How many horrible pitches have we seen? I mean, Barack Obama threw some of the worst pitches from anyone who ever claimed to be an athlete that I've ever seen in my life. There's just been so many bad first pitches, right? Carl Lewis, 50 Cent, they're just bad, right? And everyone just kind of forgives it. We just kind of chuckle and move on. You know, they're not Major League Baseball players. But Bush was a, he was a player, right? He was a good athlete. Um, and he actually threw out a first pitch, pitch in Milwaukee um, previously in his tenure. And he was wearing like cowboy boots that day and his foot kind of slipped on the rubber and he ended up bouncing it, right? Which if, if you've ever thrown out a first pitch, which I've actually had the opportunity to throw out a first pitch at a baseball game at Bush Stadium in St. Louis before, you don't want to, you don't want to bounce it. I mean, if you're going to do anything, you want to throw it high. You definitely don't want to bounce it. And so in a little bit of a way, George Bush was trying to kind of, you know, recapture that moment again and actually have a better first pitch. But the grandeur of the moment was not lost on him, right? So much so that uh, before the game, uh, he was in the tunnel underneath Yankee Stadium and he was warming up. Like he was warming up. I think it was with one of his secret service members and because he did not want to mess up this first pitch. And, you know, the captain of the New York Yankees and one of the best uh, shortstops of all time, Derek Jeter actually came up to him and kind of tongue in cheek said, Hey, uh, you know, good luck. You know, we're, we appreciate you being here. And as he walked off, as the legend goes, he says, Hey, uh, make sure you don't bounce it because they'll boo you. Right. So it was just this, this kind of really, really funny moment. And, you know, it was interesting because George Bush refused to wear a bulletproof vest. Right. Because, again, there's still all these security concerns. You know, it took people hours to get into the stadium that day because they weren't sure, you know, if, if anyone was going to try another attack of some kind. But he's like, I'm not wearing a bulletproof vest. I'm not going to go out there and look all puffed up and, you know, portray this idea to the country that we're all still scared. And so all that set up and all that going, he's introduced uh, by the famous Yankees announcer. He goes out there, he gets on the, on the mound, he waves at the crowd, and then he throws a strike. He throws a perfect strike and it was just incredible. I mean, I'm even getting goosebumps, literally sitting here recording this right now. Seriously, one of the most incredible moments. And look, it doesn't matter if you voted for him in that election or if you had voted for Al Gore. It doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter if you're not a Republican. It doesn't matter if you're not a George W. Bush guy. None of that matters. At that time, we needed a leader. 
And we need a leader to go out there and even do something small, something symbolic that was going to help the nation heal. And that was just an incredible, incredible moment. So again, if it seems like I'm romantic about baseball, it's, it's literally because I am. Because baseball, whenever I look at it, it has helped America grow, it's helped America fight, and it's helped America heal. And it's done it on more than one occasion. So some of you will probably remember the movie Field of Dreams. So this was a movie is a little bit corny, but it's got some really cool parts, uh, especially if you've seen it. But there was a scene towards the end where Terrence Mann, who is played by James Earl Jones, was talking to Ray Kinsella, who was the main character uh, played by Kevin Costner. And this was a quote that he said. He said, the one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It has been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, it's part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good and it could be again. And so as we wrap up that first section, um, I really feel that baseball has been a tremendous thing for us to view uh, in light of what we've done as Americans, but also how we have progressed as a country. So that's the first point there. And then, so that's just kind of basically talking about America as America's pastime. And now let's get into the second section, which is life lessons learned from baseball. So I really was able to distill it down to four major lessons that I think all of us could uh, get value from in terms of for what we can learn from the game of baseball, okay? And so that first life lesson is the importance of individual responsibility and performance. Again, that's the importance of an individual responsibility and performance. Of any game that I can think of, this game puts you on the spot, like in a huge way. There is only one pitcher on the pitcher's mound. Like there's not a line of five fat guys in front of the pitcher before he throws the ball. It's just the pitcher, right? I mean, there's only one hitter at the plate at a time. Like there's not a bunch of other hitters like distracting the defense, going a bunch of different directions. There's only one hitter at the plate. I mean, there's only one fielder in that area of the field. And in the infield, they're all kind of all bunched up and the outfield are a little bit more spread out. But you're in your area. And if the ball's hit in your area, you are put on the spot. When the pitcher throws you the ball, you are put on the spot. When you're pitching the ball, you are on the spot. There's only one ball in play at any one time, right? This is a game where individual responsibility is key because if you're playing center field and the ball's hit to you and you just stand there, it's going to be a problem. I mean, the left fielder or the right fielder will eventually get there, but if you just stand there, it's going to be one, if not two more extra bases for that fielder, maybe even three, right? But you've also got to perform. Like you're responsible for yourself. There's nine guys that go through the batting order. You're, you're responsible for your part, but you have to perform. Like everyone has to do their own part in order to make the cog in the wheels go forward. Right. And that kind of leads into the second thing. So the first was the importance of individual responsibility and performance. And the second life lesson is not all cogs in the wheel are equal, but you need all of them. Right. So, so the game of baseball, it's, it's a game that can be dominated by dominant players, right? So we, we've heard about dominant pitchers like your, you know, Sandy Koufaxes and your Bob Gibsons and your Clayton Kershaws and Max Scherzers, right? Randy Johnson. Then you've heard about your dominant hitters. So these are your Stan Musials and your Ted Williamses and your King Griffey Juniors and your Tony Gwynns, those types of guys, right? But dominant pitchers still need a catcher, right? Like they, they still need defenders behind them. You know, dominant hitters, they still need runners on base, right? Even the best home run hitter of all time, Hank Aaron, he needed some extra guys on base. You know, he needed some RBIs to help his team win, right? 
But the thing is, is at the at the time that Clayton Kershaw's on the mound and he's pitching in a game like he will to you know this weekend, he's the most important player on the field. He just is. He's the most dominant player on the field for either team. But he can't do it by himself. He can he can get really close to winning the entire game by by himself, but he can't do it by himself. And the same with hitters. You very very rarely see a game where one hitter in the lineup has all the offense for that lineup. It's incredibly incredibly rare. Right? Because essentially you have to have nothing but solo home runs. That's essentially how that goes. I mean, one player, you know, whether that be a hitter or a pitcher, one player can win you most of the game, but not all of it. Right? So, so not, again, not all cogs in the wheel are equal. There are some that are greater than others, but you need all of them in order to go forward. So the corollary, obviously, for you in your life is you're going to be in teamwork situations, right? You're, you're going to have times where you have to be able to perform and you have to perform even within the context of a team that goes back to, to the first point about individual responsibility and performance. And you might be the most important person on your team and you might not be. You might be the most important person in your family at that exact time or you might not be, but you're still an incredibly important person to that team and you need all the people on the team and everyone's got to be able to perform. Okay. The third life lesson that I've learned from the game of baseball is your attitude in the dugout is as important as your attitude on the field. So I just got to admit something to you. When I played baseball and anyone listening to this podcast that ever played with me can obviously really attest to this. I had the worst attitude if I did poorly. I had a horrible attitude. So people say, you know, shake it off, move on to the next play, move on to the next at-bat. I couldn't do it. If I struck out in my first at-bat, I ended up having a horrible game because I was thinking about that strikeout the rest of the game. I was thinking about in the field. I was thinking about every time I got into the batter's box, every time I walked back in the dugout, I was just like, like I couldn't believe that I would mess up so bad, right? And this, the, the worst part about it, the most nefarious part was that was whether or not my team was winning which looking back is incredibly embarrassing even to talk about, but I was just so mad at my performance. And here's the thing. You can have a bad attitude on the field, right? Yeah. I mean, we've all seen it. You know, a guy strikes out and chucks his helmet or, you know, even Bo Jackson breaking his bat over his head or over his leg or something like that. We understand that, but your attitude in the dugout is incredibly important as well, because that's where you have the closest contact to the rest of your teammates. And look, if you're walking around and you're pouting and you're whining and you're complaining about, oh, well, if you hadn't given him that second strike, I wouldn't have to had to chase strike three or, you know, gosh, the zone's just been so big today. And gosh, I just don't really know. I, you know, I got a sunflower seed in my eye or something stupid like that. You know, it affects your teammates. They're either going to have to waste their time and energy looking at you like what a freaking moron, or they're going to, you know, think to themselves, yeah, you know, that that zone is pretty big today. Like, gosh, you know, I had to kind of, you know, widen my stance a little bit just to kind of make sure that I could reach out there and get the pitches that he was calling for strikes. And you don't want to do that. And in life, it's the same thing, right? You know, some people act differently when they're outside the home than when they're in the home. You know, they have like a great attitude when they're at work and everyone thinks they're a great person and they're super positive and everything's about, you know, positive vibes and all this other stuff. Right. But then when they're at home, they're just a curmudgeon. They're just like, you know, they're hard to talk to and it's not, you can't really get, maybe you can't get a word in edgewise or they don't really love on people around them. They're not really polite. They're not really accommodating, but your attitude in the dugout is as important as your attitude on the field. And it's the same thing in life. Treat the people in your immediate family, the people you're around a lot of the day and a lot of your life, treat them incredibly well. Have a good attitude in front of them. Show them that when things go poorly, that you don't have to act badly, right? 
just like you wouldn't work. There's a lot of times where, you know, you get a, you get a bad report that comes back or, or, you know, your profit and loss isn't what you thought it would be for this quarter. You don't just, you know, walk around pouting, like, especially if you're the manager or the CEO or the leader of the team or whatever that looks like, you're not going to walk around pouting. I mean, if you do, it just makes you a crappy leader, but that that's really the thing, right? Is you have to have a good attitude, even if you're having to try to convince yourself that that's something that you need to do, right? So lesson number four that I've learned from baseball is going all out typically works. This, is, this one's probably my favorite. Okay. Going all out typically works. So, um, to take you a little bit back to kind of how I was in athletics, my parents didn't really care whether or not I played sports. Like it wasn't like really, really important to my dad that, you know, I like proved something in sports as if that was going to have some reflection on him. Like they just didn't really care about whether or not I chose to play sports. What they cared about was my level of effort in whatever it was I chose to do. So if I wanted to be in band or I wanted to be like a little ballerina or if I wanted to, you know, do something, I don't know, start a business when I was like eight years old, they didn't really care, but they wanted me to give full effort all the time. So, um, in a game, I I never got in trouble after a game because of things that I did wrong during the game, like in terms of my output. So if I went over four at the plate with three strikeouts and two errors in the field, didn't matter. My dad wasn't reaming me on the way home. Like no one was getting mad at Kyle at that point, except maybe myself and my coaches. Right. But the only times I ever got in trouble in my entire athletic career. So this would have been baseball, wrestling, football, like soccer, anything was if I didn't give full effort, if I was dogging it, that's what my dad would always say. He's like, you just can't go out there and dog it. Like if you're going to go out there and dog it, you're not going to play. And so every time I played the game of baseball, it didn't matter if I hit a sharp ground ball to the shortstop and he fielded it immediately cleanly. And I'm barely out of the box. You know, by the time it's in his glove, I am sprinting to first base, right? Absolutely sprinting. You know, maybe I hit a ball in the gap and there's one of the outfielders has a good arm. I'm taking a huge turn around first base because if he bobbles it at all, or if he doesn't come up throwing, I'm going to take second, right? I would always run really briskly or sprint to my position. I normally played outfield. That was where I was the best at sprinted to the outfield. And after the inning was over, sprinted back to the dugout, right? And you don't see this a lot in the major leagues because most of the outfielders and infielders are incredibly good defensively. But every now and then you see a guy, you know, he hits a ground ball and then he just kind of jogs out of the box or something like that. Or maybe a fly ball is maybe a better example where, you know, it's a routine fly ball, but gosh, it gets up there in the sun and all of a sudden the, the fielder can't find the ball and then it just falls near him or on him, but he doesn't catch it. He doesn't get the out, right? And then you look at the the guy who had hit the ball and there he is just standing on first base. When if he had been hustling the whole way, he'd be standing on second. So now you have a runner in scoring position and, you know, you didn't really have to give much effort, but because you had made a decision that out of the box, well, this is an out. I'm so I'm just going to go through the motions of running to first base. You ended up costing your team a chance at a run, right? And so for me, I'm the type of guy that, you know, if, if you know me, I'm not a huge guy. I'm like five foot 10, 190. So I'm not like this huge, you know, you know, John Carlos Stanton type of guy. I look like I've been cut out of a piece of solid granite or something like that. And so I always had to do different things on the field that maybe weren't completely naturally or completely natural to me. So, uh, there are a lot of things I do well athletically, but there's a lot of things that I don't do well athletically or any more superior than any of the other elite guys on our team. Right. But one thing that I could always control was my level of output. And my thing was I was going to go all out all the time. And I think that's a great lesson to learn 
in terms of life. So whether you're playing a sport, you know, even as an adult, you're doing a sport, or if you look at your job that you're doing as a dad or the job that you're doing as a husband or the job that you're doing as a mentor, the job that you're doing as a deacon or whatever that ends up looking like for your life, go all out guys. Like why not? Like that was the thing I never understand about even major leaguers that don't run it out. It's like, you don't know what's about to happen. 99% of the time, the shortstop's going to field the ball cleanly. He's going to throw it right at the first baseman's chest and you're out. But if, if you don't want to run it out, why not just run straight to the dugout? Like why pretend like you give a crap by running to first base or jogging to first base? Because how many times do you see it? The ball, you know, goes in the dirt. The first baseman doesn't field it cleanly, but here you are. You're still probably 20 feet away from the base. And the first baseman has, has time to readjust, maybe pick up the ball on a second hop and you're still out. Go all out guys. Like that, that is the thing for, for all of you guys listening to this, even if you're not a baseball guy, which if you're not a baseball guy, you're probably not, you know, listen to this still, but go all out. Like that's a great lesson to learn from the game of baseball. So again, my four lessons that I've learned about life from the game of baseball is number one, the importance of individual responsibility and performance. Second, not all cogs in the wheel are equal, but you need all of them. Third, your attitude in the dugout is as important as your attitude on the field. Fourth, go all out or going all out typically works. Going all out typically works. But even in baseball, there's a lot of other things that we can glean from the game of baseball that I'll just go through these quickly. A lot of other different areas. One of those is leadership. You know, we've seen a lot of different types of captains that are on the field. Uh, we've seen that in the modern, in the modern day game, but there's a lot of guys that even if they don't have a, you know, a C on their Jersey, which, you know, we don't really do that in baseball anyway. Um, these are guys that are just captains of the field. Then you have, you know, leaders like, uh, you know, great managers, like a, a Tony, Tony LaRusa type of guy. And even though the angels are pretty much, you know, hot trash. Mike Sosha is the type of guy that, you know, the only reason that you still have a job after losing so many games over so many years is because you're still such a great leader. You're great for the clubhouse. Uh, So we've learned a lot about leadership. We've also learned about economics. So look at the salaries, the average salary for a major league baseball in the eighties and look at it now. So I think I hit most of my audience's lifespan, right? 80s to now. I mean, in the 80s, if you had a guy sign a multi-million dollar contract, it was like, wait a minute. This is going to be in the first, like the front page of the New York Times. Now we're looking at Manny Machado and Bryce Harper are going to be free agents going into the 2019 season. Both of those guys could very easily sign contracts that are over $300 million guaranteed over 10 plus years, right? I mean, we've seen increasing salaries. We've seen free agency come into the into the fold. Uh, Cardinals player Kurt Flood was uh, supposed to be traded to the Philadelphia Phillies, and he denied the trade. Um, and you know, he ended up taking his case all the way up to the Supreme Court because at the time you didn't really you couldn't really say no. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be traded. I'm not going to be traded like that. So we we got a lot of uh, a lot more incentives in the trade market. We got a lot more things surrounding free agency. So we've learned a lot about economics from the game of baseball. Let's talk about immigration. Some of the best players in baseball, especially, especially over the last 10 years have not been Americans. So these are guys from Japan, from the Dominican Republic, from Venezuela, uh, Canada, Netherlands, Mexico, Korea. I mean, just, you can name off all these different places, Puerto Rico, like I almost left Puerto Rico. That's some of the best players that we have. Right now, but let's also look at Cuba. Um, if you leave Cuba, you have to defect. So all these Cuban baseball players that, you know, I mean, look at, you know, in the nineties and early two thousands, you had Orlando uh, Hernandez and his brother, Levon Hernandez. Um, You have even modern day guys like Yasiel Puig and Jonas Cespedes. These are guys that, you know, had to leave their country of origin 
some of them under in- incredibly insane circumstances. Just Google Yasiel Puig's you know path to coming to the major leagues in the United States. We've learned about immigration. We've learned about all these guys that are from countries. Some of them are good countries. Some of them maybe not so much. But these are guys that all wanted to make a career for themselves in the United States. And for a lot of these guys, they stay here. So even after their playing days are done, like they don't end up going back to their other countries. They stay here, but they're also serving their other countries. A lot of players, I mean, uh, you know, they'll go back to their uh, original countries. They'll go back to the Dominican Republic or they'll, they'll go back to uh, Venezuela or maybe not Venezuela now, but they'll go back to these countries and they'll help the people out in the villages that they grew up in and different things like that. So it's just incredible. We've learned about immigration. And that goes into, you know, we've learned a lot about freedom. So these are guys that, you know, especially look at your modern day guys, you know, Yasiel Puig and Jonas Cespedes and other Cuban ball players. Are, uh, these are guys that don't have freedom. I mean, draw a circle around the United States and uh, delete the United States and then ask anybody else in the world what they think about free speech because they don't have it. They, they don't have a Bill of Rights. Where, where they live, right? They don't have those types of freedoms. We, we learn about equal rights, right? So there's been a lot made about Jackie Robinson and rightfully so. Uh, he broke the, the baseball color barrier in 1947, which was about a decade before the civil rights movement, right? So, so baseball, even though it should have been integrated a long time before that, um, it showed us a lot about what this country thought about equal rights and the direction that we were going. I mean, even in 1884, that was actually when the first African-American played professional baseball. His name was Moses Fleetwood Walker. So it wasn't actually Jackie Robinson it was Moses Fleetwood Walker, but this was even before baseball was kind of this, you know, posh thing that people would be into, but it showed us a lot about where we were going as a country. You can look at technology. So within technology right now, we have advanced metrics. You know, people look a lot at, at war. They, they look at, uh, for hitters, the launch angle coming off the bat that has revolutionized the game really within the last season or two. Um, there's a first step timer. So if you're a fielder, it's kind of how quick is your first step towards the ball? That requires a lot of technology, uh, pop time. That's the catcher. You know, basically from the time his, um, if, if a player is stealing second base or third base, it's basically the time it takes the ball to hit the glove and for them to come up and throw the ball. Like that's their pop time, right? Um, then there's path efficiency. So if you're a fielder, like an outfielder where the ball's hitting the gap, you know, how efficiently do you get to where the ball ends up landing, right? All technology is really helping with that. It's helping, you know, with strike zones and different things about how pitchers are preparing themselves and really innovation. The, the game of baseball has taught us a lot about innovation. We've seen a lot of different Defensive shifts. So you'll see, you know, guys that are normally pull hitters, uh, they'll see three infielders on the left side of the infield. Um, we've seen different uh, teams. Uh, I think it started with Tony Arusa and a lot of other people do, done that. In the National League, they'll actually hit the, the pitcher eighth. The pitcher is normally the worst hitter on the team. And, you know, you hit them eighth. And then if you have a good hitter, a good on base percentage hitter in the nine hole, you're going to end up getting you know, potentially like two leadoff hitters right there. Um, even now, I mean, I just saw an article today where the Houston Astros, the defending world champion, Houston Astros are going to use four outfielders at different points during the year. Like not like a rotation of outfielders where they're going to have three out of the four playing at one time. They mean taking a guy from the infield and actually putting him in the outfield. It might be like a Rover situation, but we just learn a lot about innovation. So uh, the game of baseball has taught us a lot. And again, that's kind of a a summary of some of the life lessons that I've learned about the game of baseball. So again, uh, the three things we were talking about today is America's pastime. The first thing, that's what we just talked about. And then uh, life lessons learned from baseball. Just wrap that up. And the last thing is baseball and resilience. So uh, again, everything we talk about here at Undaunted Life has a lot to do with resilience. But here's the reality about the game of baseball, guys. (laughs) Baseball is a game 
of failure. Like you've probably heard it called that if you've been anywhere near the game. But if you succeed three out of every 10 times you do something in baseball, you're a Hall of Famer. I'm basically meaning at the plate. If you get a hit three out of 10 times, you're one of the greatest players literally ever. Just just think about that as a corollary to other sports. If you were a basketball player and you made three out of every 10 shots that you took, that is not a great percentage, like at all. You're essentially Andre Robertson. Sorry for Thunder fans listening to this. I know I'm hating, but you're just not really a good scorer. You really should never have the ball in your hands. Like think if while Peyton Manning was playing, think about if he only had completed three out of every 10 of his passes. Like that would be pretty insane, right? It, But it's a game of failure. You can fail seven out of 10 times and still be considered one of the best people to ever do it. Here's another thing is perfection is almost impossible in this game. So there's been over 150 years of Major League Baseball. And in 150 years of baseball, there's been well over 200,000 games. There have only been 23 perfect games ever pitched in the history of the game of baseball. So over 200,000 games, right? But there's two starting pitchers to start a game. So there's been almost half a million, I mean, well over 400,000 chances for a perfect game. And if you don't know what a perfect game is, that means the pitcher has gives up no hits, he gives up no walks, he does not hit a batsman, and there's no errors in the field. 23 out of hundreds and hundreds of thousands. But here's the interesting thing about that. Even in those 23 games, those pitchers still made mistakes. Like there were still pitches that probably could have been hit. Like, you know, maybe for a home run or at least for a single or something like that. But it ended up not being like a bad thing. They still made mistakes, though. And in a lot of ways, it's like that in life. It is like life. Our lives are full of failure, guys. Like we fail literally all the time. And and if you can't admit that to yourself, maybe we need to do a separate podcast on how we should be honest with ourselves and have a, a good look at what we are actually doing and how we're actually living. But as Christians, we call failure, you know, which is basically the failure to live up to God's calling for our lives. We call that sin, guys. And we all have it. I mean, Romans 3.23, you can probably quote it before I even say it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us. When, you know, whenever said all, they, they certainly meant all, right? But there's a scripture that I want to talk about because I've seen it quoted a lot, especially in, in sports type settings. And that's Philippians 4.13. And you might be able to quote this one before I say it as well. But Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through him that strengthens me, right? You've probably seen that on a coffee mug. You've seen it on a t-shirt, bumper sticker. You know, maybe it was on like a, a placard outside of it, like a football camp or something like that. But the thing about this is, even though it's used by a lot of athletes and, and business people and you know nonprofit people, it's kind of used incorrectly for the most part. Be- because again, if, if we're being honest, meaning comes from the speaker, right? You know, or the speaker or the writer of the thing, not from the person reading it. So we have to look at what was trying to be communicated here. What was Paul trying to communicate here to the Christians in Philippi? So as you would agree, text without context is just text. So we have to get a context for why verse 13 was even in there. And if we include verses 11 and 12 with 13, then we get a much, much clearer idea about what Paul was trying to get across to us. So I'm going to read to you Philippians 4, 11, 12, and then I'll read 13 to you. So here we go. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So uh, Monty Waldron, he, he had a little article online and I thought he put it very well. So I'm going to read a quote from his little blog, which was this. Paul's aim here is contentment, not achievement. Rather than envisioning all that he can accomplish, he is focused on his heart response to his circumstances, whether favorable or not. Guys, baseball is a game that teaches the people that play it resilience. If you've played baseball, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have to forget your last at bat. Again, seven out of 10 times, even if you're really, really, really good on top levels, you're going to fail. You have to forget your last error. You have to forget the last thing you did wrong. Baseball is a great conduit through which we can practice spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, okay? We live in an ever-growing secular age, and Christianity and Christian thinking is becoming marginalized, but we have to be resilient in the face of all of that, right? And again, I know I'm, I know I'm being a little bit romantic here. I've mentioned that several times about my, my attachment to the game of baseball, but it just goes deep for me, and I'm sure it goes deep for a lot of you as well. Baseball is something... That has to be overcome in a lot of ways, even if you're really, really good. You have to get back out there. You have a bad day. You do things poorly in the field, but you still have to, to move things in the direction uh, that, that would be beneficial for you and beneficial for those around you. And so I just want to be very, very open with all of you that, you know, I'm here for you. Like if you're going through a tough time, you know, I, again, look at the, look at the game of baseball as an example for you of what you should do. Guys are not striking out and then sitting in the dugout for the rest of their lives, right? You know, you may have struck out in business. You may have struck out in a relationship. You may have struck out on a conversation with your kids. You may have struck out in, you know, whatever situation, but you got to get back up and you got to be resilient, okay? So as we wrap up here, guys, we're going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know by now, we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. And specifically, we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So what I want to do for you is I want to provide uh, some, some resources to you that are all centered around baseball, some things that I've discussed in this podcast, but also some things that I would like to suggest to you thereafter. So I mentioned Jack Buck's speech. Uh, earlier in this podcast, I talked about Mike Piazza's home run against the Atlanta Braves and also George W. Bush's first pitch. So there are YouTube video oh, and also the Field of Dreams uh, quote, kind of that people will come speech. I've got the YouTube videos for all of those. Those are going to be in the show notes. So check those out. Those at least give you a good idea if you didn't know what I was talking about. There's also an article that I found while I was kind of researching my notes here, uh, and it was by William McKenzie, who's part of the uh, George W. Bush Institute, and it's called Why Baseball Matters Still. So I thought that was a, it was a short essay, but I thought it was very, very powerful and gives us a better, a good idea, even in modern times, why baseball is still important to us. But then I also wanted to suggest four books to you guys. So uh, like I said, I, I try to read a lot of books, and I've read a lot about the game of baseball over the years, so there's four books I'd like to suggest to you because I think they might be interesting to you. The first one, is 42 Faith by Ed Henry. So this is a story about Jackie Robinson. So there's been a lot of biographical and autobiographical information out there about Jackie Robinson. There's been documentaries made. It's been, you know, a lot about, a lot about him has, is out there already, but there's not a lot of people that have talked about his faith in Jesus, right? His, his relationship with God, you know, kind of his, his setup and his discipleship with all that. And so Ed Henry goes into that in that book. And it's, it's very interesting. It's got a lot of detail in it. The other one is the Matheny Manifesto. And this is by Mike Matheny. He's the current manager of the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, So before he became the manager of the St. Louis Cardinals, his only managerial experience was actually for his kids, like little league team. Like he had never, he wasn't a minor league coach. He wasn't a college coach. He wasn't even a high school coach. He was a little league coach, right? 
And so the Minthini Manifesto originally started as, you know, this kind of multi-page document that he gave to the parents of the the team that he was coaching at the time, you know, the kids team. And it was just basically standards by which they were going to, uh, you know, hold themselves to throughout the year as parents, but also as players. And, you know, the, the little note went viral and then it eventually became a book. And so it's an incredible book. And, you know, there's a lot of lessons in there, if you're, even if you're not into baseball. Then there's another one called The Game by John Pessa. That's P-E-S-S-A-H. Now, this one's an incredibly involved book, so you've really got to be a baseball fan to be into this one. But it kind of talks about the era where Bud Selig and George Steinbrenner, who was the owner of the Yankees, and uh, Bud Selig was the commissioner of baseball at the time, kind of the power struggle that they were going through, you know, kind of what was going on during the strike era, during the steroid era. A lot, a lot of detail. I think it's like five or 600 pages. But if you're a baseball guy, like, dude, this one's totally for you. And then, obviously, you probably knew this one was coming the phenomenon by rick ankiel that was my number one favorite book in 2017 so i think that goes back to what was that podcast two or three where i was talking about uh the the best books that i read in 2017 this was my favorite book so it's the best um autobiography that I've read in terms of like sports autobiographies, probably the best autobiography I've read ever, uh, actually. And so that's a great book. Good one for you to pull up. So those resources are there. All of those are in the show notes. Okay. So again, thank you guys for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google play and refer your friends to listen and share on social media. And as, as always, if we deserve a five-star review for this podcast, please leave us one and make sure you leave us a kind comment as well. And also new thing that I'm going to be making in terms of announcements. I am booking speaking engagements for 2018. So if you'd like for me to come and speak to your men's group or your men's ministry or to your church or to your business, you, you can get a hold of me at info at undaunted.life. Again, reach out to me, Kyle Thompson, info at undaunted.life. Our website is www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undauntedlife, facebook.com backslash undauntedlife. You can check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links to all of this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.